0: Talk to your local agent today.
1: This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That is me. And as often happens these days, I have more than one interview in this podcast for you for the same low, low price of free. First, I've got Ben Smith from the New York Times talking about Aussie Media. Of course, I didn't do a long explanation about what Aussie Media was because I think that anyone listening to this podcast knows about it at this point, has read one of the dozens of articles, hundreds, thousands of articles Ben Smith wrote about it. It's a good story. And then I also talked to Roger Lynch, who is the CEO of Condé Nast, another company everyone who listens to this podcast has heard of. Um, As you guys know, Condé is in a years long effort to sort of retool itself from giant influential magazine publisher into something else. It's a work in progress. uh, And we had a long conversation about that. I think you will enjoy it. So here's me and Ben Smith. I am here with The New York Times' Ben Smith, he has been busy. Welcome, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for taking time off the Aussie media beat. Uh, by my count, it's 10 days since you wrote your first Aussie media piece. 10 days, 1,000 articles. 1,000, it, what? how many articles are you up to, 10? I don't know, more than I had expected to write. Ben is passed out on the floor right now, so I'm glad he has uh, the capacity to talk to us. Um, exposed aussie media is as complete bullshit. uh five days since the company said it was shutting down two days ago carlos watson appears on national tv over and over and says no we're coming back are there any more any more shoes to drop any more chapters in the story or are
2: we done are you done ben um i think the remaining chapters will have to do with the investors there was the, the first investor lawsuit uh dropped on monday mm-hmm. in cal federal court in california a, this is um, someone who invested just this year crazily. Yeah. I think the thing is that they they raised more than $30 million after allegedly trying to um, defraud Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. And I think in the view of a lot of investors, it would have been material to disclose that they had this massive skeleton in their closet. And so anyone who put in money after that, I think at least the view of this investor who sued is that they have grounds to get their money back. And I think that Both they and quite possibly federal investigators are going to look at that. And I think that's probably going to make it pretty hard to operate the company.
1: Even absent that, is there any reason to believe there is going to be an Aussie media and other than Carlos Watson walking around talking about it? You know, they have a
2: a giant, they purchased just an enormous number of emails. They claimed to have 26 million in the database. (laughs) But of course, if you send lots and lots of people emails they don't want, you mostly go to spam. But they are. I think they're getting more. They were getting more than a million opens a day. And if you have an email list with a million people, you can sell some kind of advertising into that. And if you are the only employee of said company writing those emails, I suppose you can sort of keep doing that.
1: Okay, so that makes sense. In twenty twenty one, Ozzy is going to be a, a one person Substack run by. Yeah, Carlos. could it be
2: Carlos's Substack? Yeah,
1: maybe. I know you've answered this before, but for for my benefit, for the
2: benefit of people listening, what did you think would happen after you published that first story? You know, I thought it would be a huge problem for the company, with its, particularly with its later investors. I just, I, I mean, and the later investors seemed a lot, they told me different things about who had led the round, about who else was investing, about what Carlos had told them about investments. The ones who sued said that they were told that Google was leading the round and was about to invest. If you were to lie about that, that would also be securities fraud. And I think I thought that when this came to light that he might have a huge problem with his most recent investors but also and, and that there might be a real problem for the company i, I did not think that many people would care because mm-hmm. nobody's ever heard of aussie media and now that you're unpacking it and, and lots of people do care
1: what, what do you think about the story resonates just this is a crazy jaw-dropping fraud who impersonates someone from google on a call with goldman Again, beyond you and me and a handful of people listening to this podcast, very few people had heard of Aussie media. What, what about it resonates, do you think?
2: Well, I think a lot of people have heard of Lorraine Powell Jobs. And I think mm-hmm. the question of like, how did the richest people, some of the most famous investors in America, you know, why do they fall for this is an interesting question, right? And I think there are a lot of reasons. Part of it is sort of the herd instinct among investors and I, and the extent to which Investing a modest amount in a company run by Lauren Powell Jobs' friend is really about getting close to Lorraine Powell Jobs, right? Like mm-hmm. so much of American life now is essentially the politics of royal courts. And, you know, whether it's Michael Bloomberg or Lorraine Powell Jobs or Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, you know, their wealth means that there are dozens of different people positioning themselves around them. and And, and a lot of the way you should interpret people's actions is there are courtiers in a royal court trying to get closer to the king or the queen. And I think that's interesting. And then I think the other thing is particularly after 2020, there was, you know, both this poll to say, we'd love to invest in a company. We'd love to advertise with a company with a black CEO. And we don't want to be anywhere near anything with politics that are challenging or controversial. And I think Ozzy was able to really hit that sweet spot.
1: Yeah. I mean, I do want to get to race in a minute back to sort of the impact of the story you used to work at buzzfeed you ran buzzfeed had you published this exact same story word for word period for period in buzzfeed would it have the same impact i don't know i think probably i think the facts are really bad
2: um why did
1: a bunch of us meaning me and you i think a bunch of people ignore the Aussie media story for so long it was it was an open secret that there were problems
2: i think there's a whole genre of story that i usually don't write which is this thing you've never heard of isn't what it seems or isn't good or isn't great or isn't doing the thing it says it's doing. And it's like the obvious answer to that is why do I care? I've never heard of it. Go write about something I've heard of. Yeah.
1: And I mean, I think that is definitely the case for me. There was, I put, I bucketed it in a group of publications like Mike and Mashable. I think there was one called little thing, the things that sprouted up uh, around the Facebook media investment boom and were clearly not going to work. And so I another think that's one failing sure. wouldn't work. You think so? I just think it had some
2: sort of interesting different DNA.
1: Sure. Uh and it, and it did it did precede all that. But another media company not really working out uh, over the last couple of years wouldn't have been a shocking story. Right. And in terms of race, do you think that Ozzy was kept afloat that much longer because of that pitch specifically? Do you think had they had Carlos Watson not been able to make the appeal that you're supporting a black-owned business, that it would have fallen even
2: faster, sooner? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think he's an incredibly hardworking and effective salesman, and there are probably other pitches, right? And I think that, you know, good pitches meet the moment in a way, and that he certainly with advertisers, you know, he did these huge deals with Dentsu and with Group M. These are people who really like do go around presenting themselves as very sophisticated about media to be there, you know, essentially the leading edge of their exciting new investments in Black owned media, which by the way, made Black people who own media companies hysterical because they felt that they had real audiences and black audiences and, you know, Roland Martin and and Todd Evans and Byron Allen and people like were like, who are the sort of, you know, a lot of his urban radio, it's, um, streaming HBCU games. I mean, you know, it's a, and it's maybe investors like less glamorous. We're black. We're running a real business. If you want to support a black owned media business, you could support us. Yeah. And and they would enroll and sold me that. I mean, you know, reasonably, they said, well, you know, we think your metrics aren't, aren't your analytics for your streaming service aren't good enough or something. Reasonable objection, except that you're then going and buying against somebody who doesn't have an audience at all.
1: And like you said, there is, the, it is not unusual to see a rich, sophisticated person, whether it's an investor or an advertiser, throw a little bit of money, which seems like a lot of money to you and me, throw a little bit of money into something for any one of a number of reasons. I remember uh, there was a thing about Eric Schmidt putting money into a, a, a dumb company that Cory Booker was involved in years ago. People tried to make something of that, but it's, it's pretty common. Um, and I think the same applies for advertisers, right? We're gonna throw some money into something, and we can check, check a box.
2: Yeah, and rich, and rich people in America right now are so rich that they can grease their relationships with what whether trivial amounts of money to them, but to you and me might you know seem meaningful. Yeah, my former colleague, Teddy Schleifer, has been talking
1: about the fact that even when they try to give away their money, their net net worth, the billionaire's net worth keeps increasing. Um, What are the grand lessons to be learned, or is this really just a crazy caper story um, with kind of a satisfying end where where the the bad guy gets found out?
2: I'm a little resistant to morality plays, so I wouldn't put it that way, but um, I mean... I don't think it's emblematic. I mean, a lot of people, there's a question I've gotten in every with far less sophisticated interviewers than you, which is, isn't this basically all digital media companies? I don't think that's true at all. Like, you and I were employed by digital media companies that worked incredibly hard to get real people to love their stuff. And and so I actually think that in any industry, you have people who are, a, to, whose real, real skill is that they are great with investors, and they're great with um, a story. clients, basically, yep. but they aren't able to deliver the service.
1: Yeah, you can fake it till you make it. You do have to make it, and you could cut some corners at some point, but you eventually can't fake people like it. Yeah, although,
2: supporters. I mean, the funny thing is, is that true in the advertising industry? I'm not sure. Maybe you can fake it forever. Advertising is like this particularly odd and unaccountable world.
1: Yes, but also, I mean, it depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about people who are measuring, you know, the return on their Instagram ads, they know exactly what they're getting. Yeah, that's right. That's true. There's a huge range. Yeah. And big advertisers are, you know, will also tell you they can tell you, you know, that they sold this many cans of Coke in Cleveland after
2: buying this many TV ads. And that gets fuzzier. Right. But then you see something like this and you think maybe that's not entirely the case. (laughs) yeah, I think in this case, there's just,
1: if there's a lot of money slushing around that is not accountable and people don't really care about. um, So there's a wide range.
2: And I would add, and people also, if they do something, if they get tricked, there's a huge incentive in that industry because it's an industry of middlemen to not tell your client that you got tricked and to cover it up. And so there is a sort of, I think the agencies drive a sort of level of complicity with ad fraud because they don't want to tell CMOs and they don't want to tell companies that they have been snowed and that they're idiots.
1: Yeah. Or that, or
2: that they're all okay with
1: it. We're all just going to participate in this system.
2: Yeah. I don't know if they're okay with it, but when, and they're not trying to get tricked, but when they get tricked, they do not go running to their clients and say, Hey, we got tricked.
1: I mean, there are actual companies in the digital ad ecosystem that whose entire business model is built on telling you that you didn't get tricked. Um, which seems like a kind of crazy safeguard to have to put into an industry like that. Um, So maybe that's our lesson. All right. uh, What's the next story about? It's Wednesday. Your next, your next, your Sunday column.
2: I think it will not be about Ozzy. I don't know. I think that two columns about Ozzy is probably enough. Don't you think? I don't know. What do you think I should write? Uh, I can't
1: tell you. Um, I would like to know about the headbands though. You wore a headband on Sunday on national TV.
2: Yeah, it was sort of, I was trying to, I guess the word would be solidarity, to express solidarity with the Jeff Horowitz, who wrote those great, great Facebook stories and I think had some kind of psychic break and put on a headband. Just because. That morning, and I was just trying to sort of buck him up. Okay, I will do it for my next interview. He was on Meet the press wearing a khaki suit and khaki, matching khaki headband. Yeah, yeah, I just wondered if it was something you had planned out in advance. And that, no, no, and that joke was like really going viral on Twitter in the two minutes that I happened to be on CNN, and so it was very... I'm not sure it really lasted. It was, seemed like maybe it was ill-advised. I don't know. Talking
1: about uh, viral jokes from a couple days ago. That's that's what my podcast is all about. Ben Smith, and The New York <laughs> Times. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to Ben Smith. In a minute, we're going to hear from Roger Lynch, CEO of Condé Nast. But first, a word from a sponsor.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline.
1: Welcome, Roger. Thanks, Peter. Good to see you, as always. Yeah, it's been about a year since I talked to you in a long-form conversation. You came to—no, sorry, two, two, years, years. two years. That's That's what happens during a pandemic. That's
3: right. It all blurs together. and gets <laughs> worse You were on
1: stage at our Code Media event. You were about a year
3: and half a year into your— Yeah. You're prob- listening to it? Probably five, six months into my role.
1: Yeah, yeah. so you've, you've been at Condé Nast now for two years.
3: Yeah, two and a half years. Two and a half yeah.
1: years. Well, why don't we start with this? Tell me what Condé Nast— is now. I remember what it was when I moved here in 1997. Mm -hmm. How do you think about today?
3: Well, I think like what you found in 1997 was a magazine business that was very siloed um, by brand and also by market around the world. And by the way, that was a great structure for magazine business. It worked, made a very successful company. But for what we are today, it wasn't the right structure. And A lot of what I've been doing since I got here is this transformation where we're moving from that highly siloed structure into a much more globally integrated media company that today is a majority digital business. I mean, the majority of our revenues today digital people think of us a magazine company, and magazines are still important for us, but that's not where the majority of our revenues are.
1: So it's no longer a magazine company, one of the two biggest magazine companies in the world. was you guys and Time Inc. And you kind of you, – you ran New York media and by extension kind of media because everyone paid attention to you guys. Now you're an entertainment company?
3: No, we're still a publishing company, mm-hmm. but – You know, and we produce entertainment content, but the way people consume that content today has changed. They still, you know, our magazines are still very popular with consumers, and readership of magazines over the last several years has been flat, but what has grown is how people engage with us on social media or on our digital platforms or on video platforms, and that continues to grow and grow and grow.
1: So, I want to talk about what you've been doing since you got there, but I still want to stay big picture for a second Mm -hmm. because when I used to have conversations with people On this podcast five, six years ago, I'd asked him about the future of magazines and what's the point of a magazine in a Twitter and Facebook age where everything is disaggregated and I'm getting my articles or pictures just coming to me very often. I can't identify where they came from. I kind of stopped asking that question because it doesn't seem like there's a very good answer to it. But since you do run a company that sells magazines and makes magazines and is based in magazines, how do you think about... Transform you know is the ma- what is the role of the magazine today? and then and then how do you get the stuff that's in the magazine to me?
3: You know it, first of all, it depends on the brand. So we have thirty eight brands around the world, thirty one markets around the world. But um, if you take Vogue, which is our biggest brand, yeah, you know, the magazine still plays a very central role to that. Um, number one, you know subscriptions globally are growing for Vogue as they are for many of our magazines, but also the cover of Vogue is still a very, very coveted (laughs) event. And it is part of an ecosystem that enables us to create content around that, whether it's the magazine itself or video, very important part of our business, uh, digital assets for the websites or social media assets. So we think of it really as part of an ecosystem. And I think for a brand like Vogue, it remains quite important even above and beyond the revenues that it generates directly as a magazine.
1: So there's components of Vogue that are important, right? The cover is still valuable to the people who are on it and people around it and maybe it means something. But the the, the role of magazines used to be we're gonna take the world and we're going to pull together the most interesting things. We have a view, we have a point of view, we're gonna express that through what we put in here, how we edit it, how we lay it out, what we don't put in the magazine. And in a world where all that's blown up and I've created my own magazine intentionally or accidentally by ch- what I choose to view or click on on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram, everything down the road, what does Vogue mean in that world?
3: It still is the brand within fashion culture that really sets the agenda. Right? It is the leading brand by far. The way consumers interact with it has changed. But like I said earlier, we actually are, subscriptions to Vogue are growing, they're not declining, to the physical magazine. Why do you think that is? You know, I think it's a couple of reasons. There was an interesting thing we saw, like, what, you know, as you know, I was in the music industry most recently, and-
1: You ran was, in Pandora w- Running
3: days. Pandora, yeah. And the phenomenon that we saw in the music industry was growth in vinyl records. And initial assumption was, okay, it's probably people like me, nostalgic for vinyl records buying it's
1: it. It's 20-somethings in Brooklyn.
3: It's what it is. It's people who grew up digitally native uh-huh. but were finding interest in physical media. And what So we're the vinyls
1: coming back story always irritated me because it was always a handful of, of guys with funny beards in Brooklyn who now are interested in vinyl. And it's it's a thing to own and be interested in. Like the same thing as having a hairstyle, right? Just a, a thing they're interested in for that moment. Um, so that's great if you're in that business. But it's a niche business that's getting – bigger, but it's still a niche business. Is that where magazines are today?
3: It's, magazines are not a niche business by any means. But what we're seeing is that people who are subscribing are actually younger people, mm-hmm. even The New Yorker. Like, you know, growth in The New Yorker, which, you know, we're seeing growth in obviously digital subscribers, but even subscribers to the physical magazine tend to be younger.
1: Do you think they're doing that in sort of a, not an ironic way, but like, oh, we like paper, again, it's a, it's a nice
3: counteraction to to, to screens, Look, you know, to be honest, we don't really care whether they subscribe to a physical magazine or a digital publication. We're just observing the consumer behavior and trying to interpret what's happening around it. And I think that a fair interpretation is that younger people are finding physical media as something new and maybe authentic as compared to how they consume everything And if that holds up,
1: that's reassuring to you and some of your writers and content makers. It's reassuring to your advertisers who still value that. Right, who value that you know, the, the, the I, page we're, in a magazine. We're, we're somewhat indifferent
3: something. because, you know, we also are growing our digital yeah. subscriptions. But um, you know what, what? What matters really to me is, and one of the reasons I came to Condé NASA is, I really felt like we had brands that consumers were willing to pay to interact with, and what we needed to do was just set up those interactions and capabilities to really uh, be able to extract value from consumers rather than the historical focus, which was just on advertisers.
1: So I asked you what Condé Nast was. You said it, it used to be these siloed region-specific yeah, magazines that was good. Yeah. Now it's not. Now you're—
3: We're multi-format uh, publisher. Uh,
1: multi-format publisher, but also you're trying to— your big push is, is to make global editions of these magazines. So you don't have 12 different versions of Vogue. Et, et, et cetera, and, and no, 20 different versions no, of
3: GQ. No, no, um, I'd actually say it very differently. So we're, we're going from what was an extreme, which was every Vogue in every market produced everything cover to cover mm-hmm. to where they'll still produce their local content, but also cooperate as part of a broader Vogue organization to create content globally of global interest. And so if you think about it, if you were going to build Condé Nast from scratch today, how would you think about building it? You probably wouldn't say, "Let me put separate editorial teams in every country to produce all their own content." You probably think of it more like maybe how Netflix, you know, produces content, which is they have content teams around the world producing content for local markets but guess what some of that content resonates outside of the market
1: yeah i was going to say newspapers with bureaus but netflix is a more flattering one cuz right cuz then you get squid game and money heist and I those think, are things that are made in spain or korea that become international yeah goods. i
3: think that, i don't think newspapers are the right uh, analogy because newspapers generally take something like the new york times they have you know branches all around the world but they primarily are producing content mm-hmm. for the us audience So they're bringing content back in. We are a company that produces, you know, an immense amount of content for local audiences around the world. But what we've also seen from Netflix and other examples is that really high quality content from a certain market can find audiences elsewhere. And we see that today in how our audiences engage with our websites around the world, where in many of our markets, 35 or 40% of the traffic to the website is coming from outside of the geographic borders. So So, do you
1: have an example where something produced in Seoul or Sweden or, pick your international capital, travels really well across the world?
3: I mean, it's by virtue of the fact that 40% of our traffic to our websites comes from outside of our uh, – the geographic border of the website itself tells you that the audiences are finding it. Here's a good example, though. In AD Architectural Digest, so we have it in many markets around the world. In Mexico, we have a team there that uh, produces AD for Mexico and Latin America. It's primarily uh, for the Mexican market. But I remember talking to the team there and they were talking about how people in Mexico are not interested in homes for Mexico. They're interested in homes in the US or in France Mm -hmm. or in Italy, all markets where we have AD presences that are producing content for those local markets. So you've got the Mexican market where people are not interested in that local architecture, but that's where the team is based. Whereas people in the U.S. are quite interested in homes in Mexico.
1: So that pitch makes sense to me. You also save a lot of money when you're doing this consolidation. That's important to you. Guys, any, to any business. It's important to Conde Nast. You guys have famously lost a lot of money for a long time. Part of your job is to fix that. But obviously there's pushback. Um, there's people who say, you know, you cut out – the localization of any of these publications, it's a problem. There's a story I'm sure you're very well aware of, Times of London, where you have um, Tina Brown, former New Yorker editor, describing this as suicidal uh, and, and that Condé Nast is going to go down like the, like the Titanic. That is a former Condé Nast editor. I'm sure they have, there's many opinions, but I wonder what you th- think when you see Tina Brown saying that about your strategy.
3: Look, you know, with with all due respect to Tina, it's been many decades since she's been working in our business for Condé Nast. So... What we're seeing is how audiences engage with our content today, and we're crafting our business around that. And we're still having local teams. What we're doing is we're eliminating things that don't add value to audiences or advertisers so that we can take those savings and reinvest them back. So we're actually investing more in content, not less. So over the next four or five years, our content investment increases by 25%, but we're eliminating areas where there's just duplication without value so that we can invest in the new areas that do add value. Again, if you're coming
1: fresh to it, this all makes sense. If you're from an era where individual magazine editors had their own fiefdoms and no one told them what to do and that's rolled all the way down the publications – it's a different world. David Carey sitting where you're – he used to run Hearst uh, a few years ago and coming here talking about how they – at Hearst, they were exploring new ideas where you'd maybe take a photo shoot from one magazine and then run some other photos in different magazines. I'm like, of course you would if you owned them and the talent agreed to that. But in the old days, that would never have been done. So I'm assuming you came and saw all this with fresh eyes and said, this doesn't make sense. Let's let's consolidate. How much pushback have you gotten from within Condé about about that move? I mean, people are going to lose jobs, are losing jobs, so no one likes that. Um, How would you describe the overall reaction to what you've been doing?
3: You know, one of the things from the day I walked in the door that I told our employees is we are in an industry that's changing. And there's a certain mistake you can make in that, which is to not change. We have to change our business. We have to change. Our audiences are telling us we have to and the way they engage with our content. Our advertisers are telling us. So my advice to all of our employees has been embrace change because it is necessary for our business. It also creates new, exciting opportunities. That doesn't mean that every one of them has. Certainly, that's not the case. But people self-select. If they find out that, well, you know, what you're doing, you're changing it into a way that I'm not comfortable, they'll usually, you know, move off and find something else to do. What I will tell you, though, is, and especially I just spent the last two weeks going around visiting our markets in Europe and meeting with those teams is... They are getting excited about what it means now to be part of a global platform. So if you're part of the editorial team in uh, Italy, you had a nice business producing content for the Italian market, but your content you know, really didn't reach the pages of Vogue in the US or other markets around the world. You're now part of an editorial team where your content can actually have a global stage like it never could before. And they understand that and they are excited about that.
1: Be a part you're of that. selling that as an opportunity and they're buying and
3: but, but, because they're seeing it yeah. like you know I'm just talking to our editor uh, of uh, Vogue Italian she was talking about a collaboration she's doing with our new editor of Vogue China that would have never happened before this
1: like a lot of publishers including the one I work for um, you guys are talking about uh, commerce and how that's gonna grow often t- I think when outsiders hear commerce they assume that means you're selling spatulas at Walmart or pick your your vendor In practice, I think for a lot of publications, including the one I work at, it means affiliate links. Um, We recommend that you go buy X, and if you click on this link and you buy it, Amazon's going to give us a cut or Google will going to give us a cut. What does commerce mean at Condé Nast?
3: It does include affiliate links, but also includes our own commerce stores, like The New Yorker has a store and Allure and uh – So if you split that business
1: up between affiliates and sort of actually selling things to customers, what's the the, the difference?
3: We also have things like uh, Beauty Box Business for Lore and GQ, where you have subscription to physical boxes. Mm -hmm. So it really, it spans across a number of things. But the areas that – and all of them are growing. Um, The affiliate area is uh, an important growing area, but also our own – Online stores are an area that we're investing in. It started really, in the case of Vogue, our business in Germany had built a nice little business on that called Vogue Collections. And we used that team then to help expand it into Italy and then to France and Spain and other markets around the world. And so, those are Vogue-branded items that we're selling as the retailer. So,
1: 20 years ago, it seems like if you could have fast-forwarded the internet and got to the point where Vogue could and wanted to do Vogue-branded collections and sell them. It would be a no-brainer, of course, Vogue would want to do that, and of course the audience would get that. Now in a world where there are influencers popping up every minute, uh, when the Kardashians are are enormously powerful based on reality shows and savvy social media, how do you convince either a consumer that Vogue is something they should pay attention to, maybe they haven't even really heard of Vogue because they're younger, or that the stuff you're selling is, is worth paying attention to when you have limited, unlimited options coming through your Instagram feed that you can click on?
3: Well, I mean, in, in terms of whether, how do we convince consumers to pay attention to us, I think the numbers show that they are. You know, we have 400 million people visiting our websites. We have close to half a billion followers on social media. Um, so the engagement is very, very strong mm-hmm. from consumers. So that's not, and in, in, you know, and growing. You don't feel nicely. like you
1: have to sort of, justify the brand or reintroduce the brand or evangelize the brand? You think the brand is the brand it means something to lots and lots of people. You're good.
3: I, I, I would never say we're good. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just not my nature to say that. I think we're always looking to how to improve our business. But one of the key things for me before I joined Conde NAS was really to understand what was happening with consumer engagement about our brands. I knew that the business model had issues and we had to work on strategy and changing, you know, revenue streams and things like that, those are business issues. What I really wanted to understand was from the brands and from consumer engagement what was happening. So I spent most of my time understanding that with the with the information requests I had. And what I found was that like that's really strong and growing. And so that's a really strong base that then you can say okay. Now what's what's the strategy I need, need to execute? What are the investments I need to make? What are the teams I need to bring in to really build out the revenue streams of tomorrow rather than just trying to optimize what was already there. And so, that's been a lot of the work that we've been doing and, and frankly, has been paying dividends.
1: Since we talked on stage, fall of 2019, a lot happened. We had a pandemic. We had George Floyd, a lot of reckoning. Your company in particular had—lots of companies had had reckonings with, with staff. Uh, so, you guys had two high-profile incidents, one around uh, culture at Bon Appetit in the video group there, and Adam Rappaport, who was the editor, left, and then you had a, a mutiny at at Teen Vogue, where the the existing staff rejected your hiring of of a new editor-in-chief. How much of this is stuff that that you take responsibility for because you were CEO of the company at the time it happened versus this is a culture that you inherited and these are longstanding problems?
3: You know, it's a mix. I think the—I knew when I joined that we had a lot of work to do on culture, and it was why one of the first—and. If you remember, the, the 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 structure of the company before was actually there were two separate companies, an in international business and U.S., and I had to merge those together and then build a whole new executive team, which eighty percent of the executive team is new since I joined. Build uh, new values for the company and ultimately build culture for the company. I knew that was a lot of work and that was there was a lot to do, and that I expected along the way. Some of the historical cultural things were kind of come up, and we'd have to deal with them. So, and certainly in the case of Bon Appetit and some of the things you mentioned, uh, that was the case. You know, Teen Vogue—it was that was something certainly under my watch where we uh, hired an editor that uh, didn't work out, and now we have Versha Sharma in place, and she's fantastic. It wasn't and, what she? Didn't
1: work out, right? You hired her, and the staff said we don't want to work for her. Yeah, but she didn't get a chance to work.
3: Sorry, that's what I meant. Is there a version of
1: that incident, in particularly where you replay it and go? Do we, we pick the wrong person to begin with? Did we pick the right person, but we didn't communicate to the staff? If the staff doesn't want to work for, her, that's all there is to it. Or maybe we should have pushed to keep this. I, I read, I see different versions of this story going Look, around. I,
3: I think that in any situation that you deal with like that, the most important thing is you learn from it and you make sure that you take the learnings into. What, what did you learn? You know, I I learned that. Uh, you can't only use your own filter for and your own values for how you judge, you know, a person's experience. And, you know, in the case of Alexi, it was— This some, is the
1: editor you hired for yes, Axios.
3: Yeah, a very talented woman who made some mistakes when she was 17. With and, tweets. Yes, and with some tweets that were, that were uh, disparaging. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think that people can be forgiven for things they do as a teenager. Um, but I also was reminded that the audience for Teen Vogue are 17-year-olds. And 18-year-olds and our editorial teams at Teen Vogue are telling them that they shouldn't be acting that way and so misreading that you know that that we'd get that type of reaction from our staff and from the audiences is a learning experience
1: you know I think the first time I met you you're working at Sling uh, for Dish Networks yeah I started
3: Sling for, TV yeah.
1: working for Charlie Ergen um, who I had on stage once and, and uh, had been labeled, like, I think, the meanest or worst boss in America. It was And he's this cable TV pioneer, very gruff, very autocratic. Uh, we talked a lot about culture there. I think he was quite proud that he was c- considered so so difficult and was totally unsympathetic to the idea that—and this is several years ago— but that, you know, that people who worked for him might be tr- felt like Google or Facebook or somewhere else might treat them better with massages and et cetera. And I'm curious how you— and that's a couple jobs ago from you. But mm. comparing that culture in that time to running a media company in 2021, where your staff can say we don't like the person you hired, we insist that you not hire her, and you guys agreed. I'm trying to think of what the right question is here. I'm just I'm just curious what you think of that move.
3: Yeah. Well, what I would say about is this: Charlie Ergen is a fantastic entrepreneur. There are very few people that build a business as large and successful as Dish Network and still own the majority of it after doing it. And he's one of the hardest working people I've ever worked for. He's one of the hardest people to work for I've ever worked for. But I learned a ton. And, you know, to his credit, I think he realized when he hired me and he hired me to build what became Sling TV is that he had to be hands off, which is not normally his nature, but to his credit, he was. He gave me the money to build it, sort of, gave me encouragement, and then let me run with it. And uh, it was a fantastic experience. But, you know, the culture of Dish is unique, and it's very different from Pandora and very different from uh, Condé Nast. It was and,
1: different at the time, even, even then. It wasn't like, oh, things have changed, and now and, and, and places like Dish don't make sense anymore. It was, it was an unusual company at the time.
3: Look, what, what I always tell employees about culture is the most important thing is to work for a company that has a culture. It might be a good culture, it might be a bad culture. The worst thing is a company that has no culture because you have no idea where you stand. You don't know what the guide rails are. You don't know what's expected of you. Like go to work for a company that has a strong culture. DISH has a strong culture. You know what you're getting into when you go to work there. And for me, it was a great experience. And obviously I left to do other things. So I sort of voted with my feet about what I wanted to do with my career. But uh, I've got nothing but great things to say about my experience there.
1: So white guy to white guy. Uh, I'm a white guy. You're a white guy. Um, now that you're running Condé in 2021 and race is something that you sort of have to think about and deal with and maybe weren't doing prior to that, How? What, what, do you, what do you lean on? What resources are you using? How are you thinking about managing a diverse workforce that wants to be more diverse that says it's not diverse enough?
3: Well, I mean, first of all, I started thinking about this long before I joined Condé Nast. Even back to my time at Sling TV, where I had a very diverse uh, executive team, and uh, and at Pandora, where I was privileged to come in and run a company that, you know, diversity was really one of the core values, and it showed up. And we published our diversity statistics, and we reported on them annually, like we're now doing at Condé Nast. So this was a core value of the of the company, and I love that about Pandora. It was really great. Uh, and great learning experience for me to to really see how much they embraced that. And it was things I learned there that I was able to bring. It's a little unusual for tech. It is unusual.
1: At, at, at the time tech. it was. Yeah. You yeah. think that's because it was not really a tech company and it was a digital
3: media slash music company? No, or No, I think, well, I think that, yes, I think that the founders of Pandora were fundamentally music people. And they had values and culture that came from you know, their interests and and life experiences. And so this was something that they built from the beginning into it. And so, you know, a quarter of the engineering team was female, which is very, it was about double the average in Silicon Valley. And there was a lot of diversity uh, initiatives within the company, and the company had quite a diverse workforce as a result. And so it was something that the company really had focused on before I joined. And I was able to come in and continue it and make sure we were doing everything we could to meet the public, goals that we set on diversity and that which to me is a great thing to do like it's transparency you know here's where we are today we measure it we report it and here's where we want to be tomorrow and we're going to report on it whether we meet it or not we're going to expect our report and see how we did by the way we're doing the same thing at Condé Nast now.
1: Um, Yeah it's now sort of I was going to say pro forma that's the right word I mean every every sort of contemporary Public – every no. contemporary employer okay. has some – I feel like has some – Well, I, within our
3: industry, I think yeah. we were the first to do it when we published our first report. Yeah. Did
1: you do it publicly or – Yes. Okay, I and feel that, like the boxes of the world have been doing it for a while. Maybe they kept it internally for a while. <laughs> um, and basically, they all say the same thing more or less. Um, it's not that much more diverse than, than it was a few years ago.
3: Well, I'll tell you this. If you look at the executive team, which within companies, usually the last thing that you see in change is the executive team. So, Cunningham asked, the U.S. business was historically fairly white, male-dominated executive team. As I mentioned, 80% of the executive team is new since I joined. 70% now is female. 30% is people of color. 30% from LGBTQ community. It is a very diverse executive team. And if you look at our editorial teams now, in the U.S., we, we're not allowed to ask the questions outside of the U.S., but within the U.S., 45% of our editors-in-chief are BIPOC. So, it is a very diverse uh, leadership team across the company, including within our editorial teams.
1: One of those leaders is Agnes Chu, who you hired from Disney. She runs Condé Nast Entertainment. I want to ask you about that group. I think the original idea of Condé Nast Entertainment was we we, we, we do all these great stories at The New Yorker, et cetera. They become movies, or they could become movies and TV shows, and we need to Instead of just hoping that happens and, and, and wishing our writers well, we should participate actively in trying to develop those things. And it still That still exists, and then layered on top of that over time, we want to be in the video business. We want to make a lot of video. We want to have our own video hub. That didn't work out. What's the thrust of Condé Nast Entertainment now? Is it more important to be a video publisher, or do you want to be doing what Vox and BuzzFeed and everybody else in, in the startup world, the uh, digital startup world, is trying to do and, and figure out how to make television shows out of your content?
3: I mean, we're already doing that. Right. And the majority of the business for cutting-ass entertainment today is the digital video side, which—, um, Make, which Making and distributing? Making and distributing, you know, whether it's on our websites or on YouTube mm-hmm. or on social media. Uh, and it's a large business for us. It's quite a large—hundreds you know, hundreds of millions of dollars business. In addition, we have film and television business which is a smaller business for us, but we have you know handfuls of shows on Netflix and feature films and things like that. And we've been building up that side of it with you know people like Agnes and Helen Estabrook and Jennifer Jones and Sarah Amos, people that we've hired who really have strong expertise and deep ties into the film and television community because, and the, the way we're able to entice people like that to join the company is because of our IP, because there's so much intellectual property that we produce. You know, we have 1,800 journalists and content creators around the world uh, producing, you know, some of the world's best long-form journalism, which is a great source for film and television.
1: Do you feel like the the streaming wars moment that we're in right now, um, where there's enormous appetite— to buy content, buy content, buy content, and they all. There's also, there's also an appetite to merge all these companies, so they have to spend less. But they're buying a ton of stuff. They're buying it from people like Box Media um, and from Conde. Do you think that continues on indefinitely? We had Ari Emanuel at, at the Code Conference last week saying, "Oh yeah, that's never. The, the appetite's never going to drop." Or do you think at some point there's enough consolidation where they go, "All right, we're, we're good. We don't need to buy this many hours of TV anymore because there's only three or four of us and we can pull back on the spend."
3: You know, I I think it's hard to predict sort of five or 10 years from now what the trajectory will be. But over the next five years, it's insatiable demand because you have these very large companies competing. But what most of them have in common is that they're largely U.S. companies that started as, if you think about Disney, Disney is largely a U.S. content producer distributing content around the world. But what they know is what Netflix has also realized, which is to really grow in these international markets, you have to have local content. There are very few companies that produce as much local content for local audiences in as many local markets as Condi Nast. We have teams all around the world in 31 markets producing content for local markets. And so it hasn't historically been in video, but it is intellectual property that really lends itself to video. And so our opportunity is to harness all that like we've done in the U.S., but now to do it on a more of a global scale, and produce content for the big streaming platforms, certainly, and uh, whether that's film, or television, documentary.
1: So, insatiable, demand for five years.
3: That's what we see. Yeah,
1: I'll take it. I think that's good for me, directly and indirectly. If this was five years ago, I'd spend a lot of time asking about Apple and the tech giants and what they mean. It, it seems like that's less important. But I am curious about Apple News Plus. I think it's still the mm-hmm. name. Where I think I think I'm paying twelve bucks and getting all of your magazines plus Washington Post and L.A. Times, no, not the Washington Post, um, but a ton of magazines. The n- folks who run the New Yorker complained about that publicly at the time. They said, you know, this is you're undercutting our digital business. We want to sell digital subscriptions. We have extra digital stuff. Where and this was a deal done by your predecessor to be part of this all you can eat bundle. Do you do you want to stay in that bundle? Is that a good bundle for you
3: guys? You know, wh- when I first joined the company. Um, one of the executives at Apple sent me an email, somebody I've known for many years. And uh, the email said, you know, congratulations on the new role. We've got this great deal with Connie Nass. And I wrote him back uh, a two-word answer, which was I'm skeptical.
1: <laughs> and, uh, and what did Eddie Q say in response but, to that? But I
3: got, I'm not going to identify the person. But, you know, as I got into the business, uh, I remained skeptical, principally around the New Yorker. Because the New Yorker is a real premium if I'm business. paying Apple
1: News Plus twelve bucks, I'm not going to buy a New Yorker
3: subscription. Well, that was that was my concern, and so when I got into the company, we did a lot of work, and you know, it's not it's not uh, an exact science to try to figure out what impact that could be happening on our business. But we got comfortable enough that that the deal made sense, and and we actually extended uh, our deal with them on the New Yorker, and you know, we wanted some changes in, in the structure of that, and. Uh, they accommodated them, and we're very happy with the relationship.
1: On, on the subway in today, I checked to see if the New Yorker was still in the bundle. It's still there. It's still there. And then I looked, and I didn't get to investigate enough, but it looked like there was digital stuff there now available to me as well, which I thought with the whole point was to not make that available, that it had to be on the website and I had to pay for that. Is that,
3: is yeah, that well, I mean, we, intentional we, on
1: your part, that we, you're moving some of the digital stuff from we, the website we to We provide more
3: content to Apple News than we're contractually obligated to. Uh, because we like the relationship with them.
1: So you think you're making—well, you believe you're making money for that. It's good for the brand. Yes. David Remnick, who runs The New Yorker, must be happy with that. Yes. The New Yorker used to be the publication where you'd say, they make good stuff, but they're losing money, and you know what are you going to do with them? And now it seems like for years and years and years, they've been on a, a tear, both um, financially and journalistically. What does it look like if you were to sell the thing? Is there is there someone who's going to overpay for The New Yorker now that it's in such good shape?
3: I, I, I think it's a very, very valuable business, uh, but it's not for sale. What are the not-for-sale
1: publications at, at Condé? We,
3: you, you, you we don't have, have any plans to sell. You,
1: you've, you've sold some stuff over time. Are, are sort of the, the core is, – is the existing roster sort of, that's it? You're, you're keeping everything?
3: Look, I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we have 38 brands around the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll always look at whether we have the right portfolio or not. But we don't have any plans right now to sell any. And the and the three brands that were that you referenced that were sold were actually uh, that was done before I joined. Mm -hmm. I think they closed after I joined. But the deal. I assumed
1: you would want to sell a bunch of stuff um, once you got here. That you'd look and say, "I want to let's let's shrink down to how you know a dozen or whatever the core number is, and really focus on that and blow those out?
3: You know, I I I did a review of of the brands to figure out whether there are any that we thought we should take a look at selling, and. A couple that sort of went on the list actually ended up performing (laughs) really, really well and we thought, we're not selling these businesses. So I think that the the key is put them on the list because they actually do better after you put them on the list.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Instead of asking you an Apple question, I did ask you an Apple question, anyway, but now the requisite question is, Substack and newsletters and, and star writers or even people who aren't stars going off and doing their own thing. I think by the time people hear this, I'll have written a story about this happening somewhere else. But I'm wondering how you think about trying to retain talent who might be looking at a substack or some version of that. Um, I've had John Kelly, who used to be at Vanity Fair, has launched Puck. I've had him and his coworkers on three times in the last few months. I'm, I'm, so I'm consuming a lot of Puck. It seems to me that's something that definitely could have existed in a, in a Condé Nast world. Are, how are you thinking about trying to keep star talent that might want to walk out the door or allowing for people who want to be more entrepreneurial to sort of have some sort of system where they stay with you, but also there's upside based on their work?
3: You know, the fact is the best writers in the world want to write for The New Yorker, and we see it all the time. And if you look at, we're actually growing our editorial investment quite significantly in The New Yorker right now. And uh, and David Remnick, our editor there, has done a fantastic job hiring really top talent. I do think that the business model of publishing w- will always change, but really for us, rather than acting like a platform, like a substack might act like, we're curators, we're editors, mm-hmm. and our brands really mean something. And so, it really would be inconsistent with our brands to say, let's create a model where just anybody could publish what they wanted to publish. And What
1: about somewhere in between where you've got a star writer, pick one at the New Yorker or Vanity Fair or Vogue, maybe they're not a writer, maybe they're a photographer, whatever they are, and they're going to continue to work for you, but there's extra stuff you can get for them. Here's a paid newsletter. Here's special access to this. And yes, that person likes writing for the New Yorker because it's the New Yorker, but also they see that so-and-so is making $800,000 a year uh, doing a substack, and and they're eyeing that as well. Is there some way to balance both things?
3: Look, we're we're always looking at what Sort of innovative business models we can have, and especially with the New Yorker, we think there are other opportunities. You know, the the uh, subscribers to the New Yorker have indicated a propensity to purchase other things, and so we have other things that we always look at business models. But
1: so there's going to be like, like an Emily Nussbaum paid plus. I'm,
3: no, I'm not saying that. It's but just I'm one of my just favorites.
1: yeah. <laughs> it seems like you're saying look. The brand is bigger than any individual writer. That's important to us. We want to keep that. We want to avoid sort of atomizing our our talent base.
3: Yes. Okay. And, you know, you think about, I know a hot topic right now is misinformation on social mm-hmm. media and what's news and what's real news. The thing that we believe is going to continue to matter is brands. So, in the, you know, with technology changing, you think about deep fakes and everything where you can't even believe what you watch now – What can you trust? You can trust brands if they're trustworthy. And we happen to have (laughs) some of the world's most trustworthy and best brands. And we think that's the place we should be doubling down on rather than atomizing out content and creating all these sort of uh, singular streams. We want to double down on our brands as trustworthy homes for content and the best writers in the world.
1: Roger Lynch, thank you for walking across Lower Manhattan coming to my office. We're doing this in person doesn't happen often enough, but we'll, we'll be doing more of it. Maybe one day we'll have you back on a stage at some point.
3: That'd be great. I'd look forward to it, Peter. Thanks, Roger. Thank you.
1: Thanks again to Roger Lynch. Thanks again to Ben Smith. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel for editing and producing as always, as well as our sponsors who bring us this free content, us meaning all of us. I listen to my own podcast sometimes. I really do. And thanks to you guys for listening. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.